Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12, 22. We've, in our study of Matthew, we've been seeing increasing opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, in many ways, that's going to reach a kind of a new high today in the, in the text that's before us. So we want to consider Matthew verses 22 through uh, 32 this morning. If you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 817. So when you find that, will you please stand in honor of God's Word and follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read the text we want to study today. Matthew 12, 22. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Loved ones, you know that we live in a world that is vehemently opposed to God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I could give many examples, but I know I don't really need to of how that is true. But I have good news for you today from this text. And that is that Jesus has defeated Satan, and He is even today delivering captives through the gospel. That's our main theme today. If you take nothing else away, I hope you'll remember that, that Jesus has defeated Satan and he is delivering captives through the gospel. The title of the sermon today is Delivered by Christ. As we work our way through the text, I will make three points to highlight the truths that we see from this passage. In our text today, it it begins with Jesus encountering a man who is blind and mute Let's look again at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, let's, let's notice something about this man. This, this poor man's condition is not simply the result of living in a fallen world. Some, many sicknesses are like that, right? It's just a result of, of the fall. But this poor man 
It wasn't just being in a fallen world. Rather, it was the result of, of a demon. It was the devastating work of a demon. This text says that the man was demon-oppressed. So a demon had possessed this man, causing him to be blind and mute. You see, Satan and his evil forces, his, his fallen angels, his demons, love to oppose God. And they do that by, by bringing pain and by marring the image of God in humanity. And then certainly by opposing the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. And that's what was happening here. The, the image of God is being further marred by, by this man being blind and, and mute because of this demon possessing him. So imagine what this man's life was like. I mean, he had the severe limitations of not being able to, to uh, see or speak. But in addition, he lived under the constant bondage of this evil spirit. No wonder then that this man was brought to Jesus, right? Because uh, by this point in his ministry, many knew, many had heard that Jesus heals people, that Jesus casts out demons, right? He's been doing that all over the place, over and over again. So really, very succinctly here in verse, the second part of verse 22, Matthew says, and he healed him. <laughs> Jesus healed the man so that the man spoke and saw. So Jesus, in, in great power and great authority, cast the demon out of the man, instantly healing him. So I'm going to have a tickle in my throat. We'll see if it goes away. Imagine what that looked like, right? This man who is blind and who is mute, Jesus, with a word, as he's done before, heals him instantly, and now the man can see. Now the man can speak. This man's life has been restored. He's been set free. <clears throat> so imagine, imagine the joy and excitement that this man was feeling, right? I mean, who knows how long, this, maybe this had been all his life, and now all of a sudden he can see, he can speak. You can imagine the excitement of those who brought him. I don't know who it was, maybe his friends, family, people brought him to Jesus, and now his life has been restored, the demon has been cast out. So this is creating quite excitement and a stir. <clears throat> In fact, look at verse 23. We see that Jesus doing this, the power Jesus has just shown in delivering this man, is, is creating a stir among the greater crowd who, who witnessed this. Right? Look at what they say. And all the people, right? This is always happening around a crowd. I mean, crowds were following Jesus wherever he went, Right? <clears throat> all the people were amazed. And, and look at what they're saying to one another, right? They're like, can this be? Can this man, the Jesus, can, th can he be the son of David? Now, what does that mean? Well, the son of David was a title for the Messiah, right? Because, uh, and remember, the Messiah is the long-awaited, promised king from God, right? The promised king who was going to come and deliver his people and reign forever, and the reason he's called son of David is back in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God made a covenant with David, right? And promised that one of his sons would be the Messiah, would reign forever, would have a kingdom that never ends. So that's a, that's a title for the Messiah, the son of David. And so the people, <clears throat> as they witness this healing, they know, they know their Bibles, they know their Old Testament, they know that 
the, the, the healing of the blind and the mute, those were signs of the coming kingdom of God. Those were things that the Messiah was promised to do once he came. And so they're starting to put the pieces together. And they're, I mean, this is not like a definitive here. This is not them just exercising faith necessarily, but they are starting to question and wonder, could this be the son of David? Is Jesus the long-awaited Messiah? Is he the one who's going to bring in the promised kingdom of God? So, you, you know, that, that's the, the conversation that's taking place all around this crowd. Well, if, we see also in the crowd are Pharisees, right? The religious leaders, those who are opposed to Jesus. And so as they hear the, this buzz, these, these, this questioning happening throughout the crowd, I mean, they're, the, the Pharisees are upset, right? They're nervous. They're jealous of Jesus. They don't want the crowds to start following Jesus. Why? Because they're the religious leaders. They're the ones in power, right? They, and they want to keep their positions of power. So what they do now is they try to discredit Jesus, among the people, right? They want to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd so that people will not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, when they hear people saying, is this the son of David? They said, well, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So do you see what, what they're doing? Or what, what they can't deny? Let's put, put it that way. What can they not deny? They can't deny Jesus' power, right? They, I mean, the fact that uh, this man who was blind and mute is now seen and speaking, there's no denying that. Clearly, Jesus has performed a miraculous healing, just like we saw a few weeks ago in the synagogue, right, when he heals the man with a withered hand. They can't deny that it's happened, and, and so they can't deny Jesus' power, so instead they attack the source of his power. They say that Jesus healed this man by the power of Satan. The, the verse says, well, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Historically, Beelzebul was the name of a Philistine god, but Beelzebul had, had come to be used as another name for Satan, and that's clearly what they're referring to here, right? The prince of demons. So the Pharisees are telling the crowd gathered around, yes, yes, Jesus healed this man, but he did it by the power of Satan. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now think about that for a second. What a wicked accusation that is. I mean, think about what he's just said. Oh, thank you. They have just, these Pharisees are, are just accusing the Son of God of of being in cahoots with Satan, right? They're, they're saying the Son of God is doing Satan's work. That is a wicked, wicked accusation. And it was a serious charge in their day. Under Old Testament law, if anyone who was doing what they were accusing him of, anyone who was practicing black magic or sorcery, guess what their punishment was? It was death. Capital punishment, death by stoning. So this is a serious charge and a wicked accusation, but notice Jesus is in control. Whenever we see this opposition from the Pharisees, we always see Jesus is is in control of the situation, right? He knows what the Pharisees are saying. He knows their evil motives. Look at verse 25. 
says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and now he's going to, beginning in the rest of 25 and following, he's going to give two um, reasons, I guess, why their, their accusation is false. Two responses to their accusation. First, he says, guys, you're being completely illogical. <laughs> right? I mean, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. Look at verse 25. Um, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So, I mean, he's really appealing to common sense here. He's saying any kingdom or any country or city, whatever you want to say, any one of those that's divided against itself, any uh, country that's in a civil war is going to fall, right? It's not going to be able to stand. And, you know, even take it down to, the, to a house, to a family, to a marriage. If, it, if, if a husband and wife are just continually divided against themselves, against each other, that marriage is in serious trouble, right? I mean, it, it's going to very likely fall and fail. And so Jesus is saying, do you really think that Satan is divided against himself? Because think of what I've just done. I've just cast out a demon. So you're accusing me of casting out demons by the power of Satan. But if that's true, then that means that, okay, the power of Satan first possessed this man, right, through a demon. And now that same power of Satan is casting out the demon. And so that makes Satan divided against himself. And he's like, do you think Satan is destroying his own realm? Do you think Satan is in a civil war with himself? So see, it's a pretty straightforward um, response, isn't it? He's saying that that isn't even logical. Secondly, then in verse 27, he challenges them on their inconsistency. Or, or we might even say their hypocrisy. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And I say, okay, what's that talking about? Well, it's not recorded for us in the Old Testament, but... Excuse me. <laughs> but in the Jewish literature of the day, um, people like Josephus, right? You've heard of him, the Jewish historian, some other contemporary Jewish literature. There were recorded uh, at least stories of rituals that people would go through to um, exercise a demon. So I don't, I don't imagine that was something that happened very often, but by God's mercy, apparently it did happen from time to time. Um, and so Jesus is pointing to that, right? He's saying what Whatever these Jewish, whatever, whenever these exorcisms may have taken place, Jesus is saying, you know that was done by the power of God, right? And by the way, let me, let me just make a little parenthesis note here. We know that whatever those Jewish exorcisms were, they were nothing compared to what Jesus was doing, right? Well, how do we know that? Well, look at what the response from the crowds are whenever Jesus is doing this in the synagogue or here, right? Whenever he's casting out demons, what is the crowd always saying? They're, like, they're always like, we are amazed. We have never seen anything like this before. So 
I just want to make the point, what, what Jesus is doing is on a completely different level, a higher level than whatever might have been taking place among these other Jews. But nevertheless, Jesus appeals to that and he says, um, you, you Pharisees believe that those other exorcisms are done by the power of God, but now you're saying my exorcism is done by the power of Satan. And so he's caught the Pharisees in a double standard here. He's saying you're not even being consistent now. You're, you're saying your guys do it by the power of God, but, that, but when I do it, it's by the power of Satan. And so that's why he says, your own guys, your own, these, own, these other guys who are doing it, they're going to be your judges. They're going to point out your inconsistency. So Jesus has, has quickly and, and definitively uh, dismantled this notion that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. Right? So what does that leave us? How is he doing it? What's the, what's the only other option? If he's not doing it by the power of Satan, what's, how is he doing it? Well, Jesus gives that other option in verse 28. Look, he says, But if it is by the, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's, he's made it clear, I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, but I'm declaring to you, I mean, he uses this if, right? You know, it's kind of like a, this conditional statement, but by doing that, he's making the point. He's declaring, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. And that flows right out of what we saw last week. Do you remember? Um, when Matthew quoted from Isaiah, what was it, 41, I believe, the, the servant of the Lord passage there, uh, that the, Jesus is this promised servant of the Lord who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about how that happened at his baptism. When Jesus began his public ministry and the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. So Jesus is the promised Messiah who's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's filled and empowered by the Spirit to do these mighty works. So Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit of God. And notice what Jesus says that signals. What what reality does that signal? That The fact that he's doing this by the Spirit of God shows, verse 28, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's kind of interesting in the Gospels to kind of track the progression of how um, that the kingdom of God is proclaimed. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, right, way back uh, as the forerunner to Jesus, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But now here's Jesus saying, guess what, guys? If I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, which I am, then that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is here right now. <laughs> the kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over his people. So the kingdom of God was this, again, you know, the kingdom of God is, is closely tied to the Messiah, the king, right? And so the kingdom of God was this highly anticipated time when God was going to exert his rule through his king through his Messiah in order to save his people, defeat his enemies, and reveal his glory in the world. And so Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. The king is here. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah 
He is the promised king sent from God who has come to save and rule. Let me read for you another passage from Isaiah, another servant of the Lord passage. This is the one that I think Luke records Jesus reading in the synagogue at Nazareth. Right? Remember when he opens up the scroll and reads it and says, hey, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and get this, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see what the Messiah was was going to do? Anointed by the Spirit, he was going to proclaim freedom, liberty, and set, set the prisoners, set the captives free. And here in Matthew 12, Jesus, anointed by the Spirit, has done just that. He has just set free this man who was held captive by a demon. So again, I mean, he's connecting the dots for them, right? He's saying the kingdom of God is here. Finally, God's promised deliverance of his people has begun. And what we're going to see now in this passage, and when you think about the kingdom of God breaking in to this fallen world, I want you to think about... um, Two kingdoms in conflict, right? I mean, that's really what's happening here. There's a, there's a battle going on, and it's still going on today, right? Uh, this, this healing slash exorcism was an example of Christ's attack on the kingdom of darkness. Because look how Jesus further explains this in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods... Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So here Jesus gives a picture of the battle between himself and Satan. Satan is the strong man that he's talking about here in verse 29, okay? So get that clear. Satan is the strong man. Well, what are Satan's goods then? He's talking about plundering his goods. What are Satan's goods? People. Satan's goods are people. <laughs> this all humanity by nature are fallen humanity are his goods, right? So they're not rightfully Satan's, right? Satan, I guess, you know, to, to further use this metaphor, we could say Satan stole them by deceiving the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, right? You see, when Adam and Eve sinned there, way back in Genesis 3, all humanity fell under the curse of sin and the rule of the evil one. And so ever since then, every person, the Bible says, is born enslaved to sin and headed for death and eternal separation from God. And so, again, as we read the Gospels and we see these miracles, just know that that's what... Not only is, is it Jesus showing power, showing compassion, and, and you know, someone's life being changed, but it, it's a picture of this cosmic battle that's taking place. Things like blindness and leprosy or demon possessions, those are just vivid examples of what marks all humanity by nature, that we are bound by Satan, by nature. And if you're taking notes, that's my first heading today, Captivity. You could write the word captivity, and next to it you could write, by nature you are enslaved to sin. 
Hold your place here in Matthew 12 and turn ahead to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bibles, please. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll come back here to Matthew 12. But it's so important that you understand this, this reality. That we're not born with a clean slate, so to speak. We're not born neutral. No, we're born already in, as sinners in bondage. Ephesians chapter 2. All of us start off this life under the ruling power of darkness, under the ruling power of Satan and his, his demons. Look at Ephesians 2, the way it begins. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Of course, Paul's talking to believers here, right? So he's, he, he's using the past tense. He's saying this is what was true of you before God saved you through Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the reality now because of the fall. God in his sovereignty has allowed Satan to presently rule over this fallen world system for a time. And so now Satan and his minions exert their power to just further facilitate this world's rebellion against God. And as the text says, all people are born as sinners into this fallen world under that ruling power of evil. And so we are by nature dead to the things of God with hearts that are bent towards sin and rebellion against our Creator. And it doesn't mean that we're not talking about just like the Hitlers of the world, right? We're talking about every person. We all, by nature, live seeking to gratify our sinful desires. We all seek to live to please ourselves. We all seek to, to, to devote ourselves, we could say, worship created things rather than the Creator. And so as we do that, as we... We don't even realize it, but as we're seeking to gratify our sinful desires, we're actually following Satan. Unbeknownst to us, as we follow the course of this world, as you young people, if you try to just follow the American dream, right? He who dies with the most toys wins, or he who you know, just tries to make a comfortable life. As you do that, you're actually following the evil one. <laughs> you're actually doing Satan's bidding. You're blindly following Satan down a dark path that leads straight to the pit of hell. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Broad is the path. Or what was it? Wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Remember, that's that's the path we're all born on. You don't even have to think about it. You're just there. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. And so, by nature, we all need to be rescued from Satan's captivity. We all need to be rescued from this strong man because he has us on a path, blinded, deceived, headed straight for eternal destruction. And so we desperately need rescued. 
Now let's go back to Matthew 12. (laughs) Who can rescue us from this strong man, from this deceiver, from this one who disguises himself as an angel of light, from this one who flashes things that look so good and so appealing and so promising? Who can deliver us? Who's powerful enough? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who, right? Only one who is more... Think, think about the picture Jesus gives in Matthew 12, right? If you've, got, if you've got this strong man who has people captive in his house and is holding them hostage, how are they going to be rescued? How can you go in and rescue the people who are captives? Well, you've got to defeat the strong man, don't you? You need someone who's stronger than the strong man in order to free those captives. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is saying he is doing here in Matthew 12. And that's what the Bible says he has done and continues to do now through the gospel. Jesus has come and he is stronger than the strong man. Every time Jesus in the Gospels, again, every time Jesus casts out a demon, that was a forceful attack on the dominion of Satan. Jesus, the, the promised Messiah, wields the power of the Holy Spirit in order to defeat Satan and rescue those who are oppressed by him. So what a turn. I mean, the Pharisees got it like completely wrong, didn't they? Rather than Jesus being... controlled by Satan or or obeying Satan, he's actually binding and defeating Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God into Satan's realm and triumphing over the kingdom of darkness. And so again, as we study the Gospels, we're studying the Gospel of Matthew together now, the public ministry of Jesus was the launching of the kingdom of God. It was the launching of God's full and final counter-offensive against all the sin, death, and destruction that had entered the world when Adam fell. And so if you can grasp that, it, it, I don't want to say it changes the way you read the gospel, but it really comes alive the way you read the gospels. Think back to Matthew 3. Jesus begins his public ministry baptized, identifies with sinners, even though he's sinless. We talked about that uh, last week, the the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, spirit of God descending upon him. Where does he immediately go? Matthew 4, into the wilderness. Why? To do battle with Satan. (laughs) He's led into the wilderness, right, by the spirit of God. King Jesus goes alone in the wilderness to face Satan, the one who, the same one who tempted Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, right? Adam and Eve were in a perfect garden with everything they could possibly need. But Satan defeated them. Jesus goes into the wilderness hungry, thirsty, no other really help or support at the time, right? Other than the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And he defeats Satan. He doesn't give in to the temptations. That was kind of like the first boom against Satan, right? Blow the first victory 
And then throughout his ministry, every time Jesus healed, every time Jesus cast out demons, he was reversing the curse of sin and freeing people from the bonds of Satan. And all of that, of course, all his public ministry, all the healings, all the casting out of demons, was foreshadowing to Christ's decisive victory over Satan. Where? At the cross. That's where the decisive victory was won over Satan and the kingdom of darkness, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Note this verse. You don't have to turn there, but just note it in your mind and in your notes. Colossians 2.15. It says, At the cross, he, being Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Think what happened at the cross in the empty tomb, loved ones. What is Satan's greatest weapons? I guess if you want to use the word weapons. <laughs> I mean, what does, what does Satan wield? Well, sin, right? And the wages of sin is death. I mean, so Satan's greatest powers or weapons are sin and death. Well, what did Jesus do at the cross? He defeated sin and death. <laughs> Praise God, right? He, he took on all the sin of his people, though he was sinless. He became sin for us, as we sang. He died under the, the penalty of sin. He physically died on the cross and bore the wrath of God against those sins. But then on the third day, he rose again in victory, defeating sin and death. And so the Bible it talks about that, doesn't it? Think about the great passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Right? And it says it, it's gone. Now death, like I said earlier in my prayer, only ushers us into God's presence. So Hebrews 2 says, now for those who are in Christ, we've been delivered from fear of death. We have been set free from bondage to sin. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We know we'll never face God's wrath. So we're saved from the enslaving power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. And one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. When God raises us from the dead and, and we get to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So Christ has dealt a decisive blow to Satan. Now, we could say Christ has bound Satan. By dying on the cross and rising again, Christ has bound Satan, to use his, his terminology in Matthew 12. He's bound the strong man, and now the captives are being set free. How? Through the proclamation of the gospel. So by dying on the cross and rising again, Christ has bound Satan. And now as the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is plundering Satan's house by setting sinners free through the power of the gospel. And that's heading number two, or point number two, rescue. Number one was captivity. Number two is rescue. And if you want to expand on that, you could say through faith, Jesus delivers us from sin and eternal judgment. 
through faith, Jesus delivers us from sin and eternal judgment. Understand what happens when, some, when God saves someone. Every time someone hears and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners and rising again as king. Every time someone responds to that, believes, embraces, follows Christ, they are rescued. They are delivered from Satan's realm. I need you to turn to one more passage. Colossians chapter 1. Again, we'll, we'll come back to Matthew 12. But Colossians chapter 1, I read from Colossians 2 just a moment ago, but I really want you to see these beautiful verses. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, page 983. Again, every time someone hears and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, they are delivered from Satan's realm. Colossians 1, 13 says, He has delivered us, Talking about Christ has delivered us from the domain or God through Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, there it is. Just what we've been talking about. Just what Ephesians 2 was talking about. By nature, we were all once trapped under under the domain of darkness, under the ruling power of darkness. We were lost. We we needed rescued and and Many of us maybe didn't even realize it yet that we needed rescued. But God powerfully shone through his sovereign grace through the gospel. And, and he, we heard the good news. The spirit of God worked in our hearts, opened our eyes to this good news. And by God's grace, we believed. And when that happens, God reaches down and rescues us from Satan's realm and places us in the kingdom of Jesus. This is how the New Testament describes it, and it's beautiful. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God rescues us from the domain where sin dominates, and he ushers us into God's kingdom of light and righteousness. And so now we no longer live under the ruling power of Satan. No, we live under the loving rule of King Jesus. What a difference, right? Now we're no longer serving a master who is deceiving us and and leading us down the path of destruction. We serve a righteous, holy, sinless king who loves us, who gave his life for us, and who is going to continue to guide us and protect us and, and preserve us all the way to glory. So now we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Right? That's what Philippians 2 says. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. This eternal kingdom that right now is invisible, but one day when Christ returns will become a physical kingdom as well, the new heavens and the new earth. Now we're no longer partners with, with Satan doing his bidding that, that brought us pain and suffering. No, we're serving Christ We serve the light of the world, King Jesus. We get to be heralds of the gospel now, proclaiming the good news that that you too can be free, that you too can be delivered from, from the enslaving power of sin, that you too can be made right with your creator. This this transfer from darkness to light comes through faith 
in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said in John 12, 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Acts 26, 18, Paul recounts his own conversion, how Jesus told Paul that he was sending him to the Gentiles then, you know, now as a, as a herald of the gospel, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So God is rescuing people through faith in Jesus Christ. So I hope you see, loved ones, that Jesus' ministry was the arrival of the kingdom of God. And that has incredible implications for us today. It affects everyone in this room because it, import, it points to an important reality and which leads me to my last point, which I simply called a warning because that's where Jesus goes in this text. Warning. And really, you could sum up his warning like this. You are either with King Jesus or you are against him. He is king. He has come and defeated Satan and, and it reigns now on high. By the way, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't, doesn't Peter say Satan is a, still like a roaring lion seeking someone to, whom we may devour? Yes, Satan has been dealt a mortal blow. He won't be completely annihilated until Christ returns and he's thrown into the, the lake of fire, right? So he's still a real enemy and we're called to stand firm in the gospel. But Jesus gives us a warning. You're either with King Jesus or against me. Back, go back to Matthew 12 now and we'll wrap this text up. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Wow, that's pretty absolute, isn't it? There's no wiggle room there. <laughs> Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So what Jesus is saying is now that the kingdom of God is here, then there's this, the, the, side, the lines have been drawn. The sides are clear. There's a battle between Satan's forces and King Jesus. And in this battle, there's no neutral ground. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. You're either worshiping King Jesus or you're rebelling against him. You're either serving his kingdom by making disciples or you're working against his kingdom by continuing to live according to the philosophy of this fallen world. And so Jesus, as he often does, he draws a line right down through humanity and says, you're either on this side or you're on that side. So that means everyone in this room is either with King Jesus or against him. You've either entered by God's grace, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you've either entered his kingdom through faith, or you're still in the domain of darkness. You're still in bondage to your sin, and that means you're still actively opposed to King Jesus. Now, again, the good news of the gospel is that Lord Jesus, King Jesus, is a forgiving king, and, and, and there's forgiveness, right? And, and more people can come and join his kingdom. More people can enter his kingdom by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ. But the time is, is short, because one day King Jesus will return, and he'll gather his people to himself, and, and, and 
we'll get to enjoy, we as people will get to enjoy the eternal blessings of his kingdom. But those who are against Jesus, those who are still in the domain of darkness, when Jesus returns, will be judged and sentenced to eternal punishment in a place the Bible calls hell. But until that day, the good news goes forth. And here's the last warning that Jesus gives us in this passage. The Bible says it very succinctly. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I think that's in essence what he's saying here in verses 31 and 32. When Jesus gives this very sobering warning. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy of the Spirit is when you ascribe the work of the Spirit to Satan. Now that Christ has has come, lived, and died, rose again, sent His Spirit, the work of the Spirit is, is pointing people to Christ. As the gospel goes forth, the Spirit convicts of sin. And so this sin, the blasphemy of the Spirit, is committed today by unbelievers who deliberately and continually reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in calling them to salvation. They harden their hearts. And what Jesus is saying here and what he says elsewhere uh, in other ways, but is... Hey, the Spirit's not always going to strive with you. This act of resistance so belittles the Holy Spirit that He may withdraw forever His convicting power, leaving you with no hope of turning and repenting. I think this blasphemy of the Spirit is very similar to the warnings in Hebrews. Right? You know those different warning passages in Hebrews? Talking about, man, those of you who have who have tasted, those of you who have who've, who've been there, you've heard the gospel, you've seen the results, you, you've seen other people believing, you've maybe even felt some kind of stirring in your own soul. Man, if you resist that, if you dig your heels in, if you turn away, then you're placing yourself in grave danger. Because God may just shake the dust off... Off the spirit, let's say, may just shake the dust off his feet and say, okay, you've made your choice. God is merciful, but may we not um, take his mercy and patience for granted. So, loved ones, friends, today if the spirit is moving in your heart, repent, forsake your sin, and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Children of God, followers of Christ, may you be encouraged by this passage that Jesus is still delivering people from their sins. Sometimes we look out and we see so much evil or maybe we even have loved ones who who seem so cold and dead to the things of God. Keep praying for them. Keep bringing the gospel to them. Keep pointing them to Christ because Christ can powerfully work in, in their hearts and deliver them from that domain of darkness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being our 
our deliverer. And as we take the bread and the cup now, will you um, encourage and, and remind us of the deliverance that you have given your people? And Lord, if there are any here today who don't know you, who are still in, who are still deceived, who are still in the domain of darkness, Father, please, by your Spirit, open their eyes. Give them faith. Draw them to yourself that they would forsake their sin and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord Jesus, we pray your kingdom will continue to grow. Be pleased to use us as your ambassadors as we proclaim this good news that there's forgiveness today, that, that King Jesus is powerful and mighty to save and loving and forgiving, and that he'll forgive all who turn to him. Give us opportunity this week to proclaim that good news, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to continue to worship the Lord um, by taking the Lord's Supper today. So if the men who are going to wait on us would, would do that. And while they do, I'll just give a couple of quick instructions and then you can have a, a moment to um, kind of just do, do your own personal business with the Lord, so to speak. Um, the Bible is very clear that the, the bread and the cup are symbols. They're not, uh, there's nothing about taking the bread and the cup that, that forgives our sins or earns us credit with God. Rather, they are symbols, reminders of what Jesus has done, that it's his work alone, dying on the cross in our place, that um, purchases, purchases our salvation. And so that's why the Bible is clear that the bread and the cup are only to be taken by those who are believers. So if, if you're not a believer today, please just uh, let it pass by. We won't embarrass you, but um, only take it if you've um, publicly acknowledged your, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's, I'll just let you pray uh, quietly and thank God for, for delivering you.